Psalms 11. We've been there a few times, and we're going there again this morning. Psalms 11 and verse 3. The question is asked, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? It has been pointed out, our foundation as Christians is our faith in Jesus Christ, who in 1 Corinthians 3 said he is the foundation. That's what we build on. It is what we believe about Jesus that makes us stand and be steadfast. If that is destroyed by deception, by misinformation, by a hundred other events that take place in life, whatever is causing people to depart from the faith or to give in or make excuses, it was too much, it was too far, too hot, too slow, too something. Or somebody tells you that it's no big deal if you don't do it the way the Lord said to do it. Or, you know, you don't have to be so rigid in all of your beliefs and your walk. After all, after all, if people can talk you out of your faith, if people can talk you out of your stand or your convictions, you don't have a foundation. You don't have much to stand on because you're not sure if it'll work or not because you've been misled or you've been deceived or you never paid attention and then you never got it in the first place. If we're going to stand fast in the Lord, it has to be because we know what and in whom we have believed. You have to know it'll work. You can't see any of this. It's all what you've been told. It's all in this book. You have to believe this. You have to accept as true what God has said in his word. And in light of all the circumstances in this world that contradict it, you still have to take your stand on the word. While you look like a fool and look like it isn't going to work, you have to say, I believe what the Bible said is true. That's your foundation. If you don't have that, about all you've got is religion. You go to a church, you perform, you put in your time, you put your money in, you sing your hymns and go home. That's about all you got. And when the day of your difficulty comes or the last hours of your life come, chances are you'll panic, fall apart, or you'll cry for mercy because you've never really known in whom you have believed. Now, there's three things I mentioned last week about this foundation that's like tempered mortar that holds this whole structure together as you build upon it that holds everything intact. And the first one was the fear of God. It's the most foundational, necessary attitude that you'll ever have. If you're going to live the Christian life, you must have the fear of God. has to be so. Your attitude about and towards God whether you reverence him, whether you respect him and honor him, it's the fear of God. You have to have that. Or everything's an option outside of that. Yeah, well, you shouldn't, you know. But if you fear God, he's the one you have to deal with when your life is over. And the second thing we mentioned was the will of God. You won't go far in life. I don't care what your attitude is about God. You may have a lot of reverent thoughts and ideas about God, but if you don't know what he wants you to do in this life, you're apt to do just about anything that seems good, but it may not get you anywhere with him. For example, your righteousness, the Bible says, is filthy rags. Man's best ideas and most noble ventures in the church are building and going and doing and helping and serving and feeding. All of that's good, but there's one thing that supersedes all of that in your personal life, and that's the will of God for you, how he wants you to live and why he wants you to live. And then the third thing that we mentioned last week was worship. Those three things go together. Worship is an indication that you have found in this life what surpasses and supersedes all the difficulties that you found. You can worship God in the darkest night. You can worship God on the brightest day. But it's in your heart to honor and praise God. Not everybody has that. Worship today for so many people, it was for me years ago, worship was reduced to first, second, and fourth stanza. And that's about all it was. We sang the hymns. We didn't really sing them with gusto. The words were good. 
It just didn't have any real meaning because I really didn't know the Lord. I didn't really care about his will. And so I was just a religious person. And nothing changed until God saved me. But you know, this foundation that we're standing on, this foundation that God has placed us on from which we build, is the foundation from which we grow. And as we begin to grow and we begin to change and we begin to grasp certain truths that God is showing us if we're willing to, these truths become assurances in our hearts. They affect us. They affect our attitude and our manners and our way of life. We really do become, by example, the kind of people that God is dealing with. All of us have this testimony. We all have something that people see in us. There's always something that God wants to show us. And there's always this life that we live because of what he did for us. I want to mention some of those things today. And the first one is, I am forgiven. Amen. I am forgiven. Would you open to Isaiah 38 and verse 17? Now, we're butting in on a conversation to another man, Hezekiah. But what it says here, it says to us as well as it did for him. Verse 17, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. Now that was also before you came to Christ, that's where you were. Instead of having peace, you had bitterness. Things were bound up in you and you couldn't get away from it. You knew the kind of person you were and you couldn't make it better. How many times have people said, well, I'm going to join church. I'm going to quit drinking and smoking and doing this and doing that or going here or going there or hanging around. I'm going to quit all of that because I've got to get myself right with God. They tried and they tried, but they never could get away from the fact that on the inside, you're as dark and uncertain as you ever were. You've got something inside of you that will hold you down for the rest of of your life. He said, I had no peace. Behold, for peace I had great bitterness. Thou hast in love to my soul delivered it, delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Now, you know, if you've never been forgiven, if you've never repented, if you've never felt deep sorrow for your sins, Paul writes, he said, it's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. It is a work that God does in his people that causes us to see the ugliness of what we used to do and how we used to live and how we used to shamefully talk and shamefully conduct ourselves. And God shows us all of that. And one day when he does, it begins to bother us. You begin to realize, because you can't escape it, the kind of person you really are is that kind of a person. You can act any way you want to, but that is the kind of person you are. You're ugly and you're dirty. You're unclean and you're a criminal before God. Now, nobody likes to admit that. That surely shouldn't be the kind of picture we should have painted of us, but that's the kind of people we were. No matter how hard we try, we go to church and sing, holy, holy, holy. We could sing with just majesty. But 10 minutes outside of the church building, we start talking and thinking and all of that stuff with our buddies and our friends. It's like nothing of God meant anything to us because inside we were dominated and controlled by a sinful nature. We were by nature, Paul wrote, we were by nature the children of disobedience. We couldn't do right. We tried to do right, but we couldn't do right. We would try to make ourselves better, but we'd wind up in the same old places every week. We couldn't make ourselves better. We couldn't get away from it. This thing haunted us. It followed us around. It was bound to us. We could play the Christian game and we could do all of this stuff, but we couldn't get away from on the inside there was corruption. Oh, that's the kind of person that we were. But he said, Lord, you delivered me. 
from all this stuff because this is what you did. You cast all my sins behind your back. Now, I had to repent, but it's God who leads me to repentance. And if he doesn't lead me to repentance, I can't repent. All I can do is have sorrow for the rest of my life about my sins and sing those sorrowful songs that the world sings. There's no solution for their sins. Well, again, as I've shared before, one of my burdens when I was in Israel last year was the fact that these people that have rejected Christ, they have no high priest, they have no temple, they have no sacrifices, they can't deal with their sins. But you can get so hard to all of that stuff that it doesn't bother you anymore. Your conscience can get seared. You can become so liberal in your thinking that you don't know what's right or wrong anymore, and it doesn't matter. Sin does a lot of bad things to people. Every, every divorce majors on sin. Every criminal act is a sinful act. Every time there is gossip and backbiting and tail-bearing, it is always sin. But you can't stop it. Obviously, a lot of people can't help it because sin still dominates their lives. Ill will, pornography, uncleanness. You can't stop it. You tried to and you can't do it because sin dominates people. It has control of people. And on your very best day, you can't do anything about it because it stays there. It doesn't leave. And you grow like this, and one day you become aware of this, and you begin to see what sin is, and all of my woes, and all the evil, and all the grief, and the sadness, and the sorrow, and the ugliness, and the uncleanness, and the mistreatment of people. It's all about sin. It's the nature of man. People say, well, if God is such a good God, why is all of this stuff in the world? Because God made us all with a will. We all have a will. We can will to act holy when we're full of evil. We can will to act evil anytime we want to. We can watch stuff, talk ugly, vile, vulgar, mean. We can steal, lie, cheat. Because that's the nature of man. God doesn't make you do whatever he wants you to do just because he puts you in this world. There's a little bit of theology in here. I don't want to cross the line, at least what I understand. While he gave you a will, you're responsible. Everybody in this room is responsible for the choices you make. Are you not? There are no victims in this room. Nobody made you sin. You sinned by an act of your will. You chose to do what you did. You chose to say what you said. You chose to act the way you acted. And what you said to her and what you did to her, what you said to him, what you did to him was a choice you made. That's sin. Because everything you did was just the opposite of what God wants. And yet you can't do what God wants. You can't. No wonder Paul wrote at the end of Romans chapter 7, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? How can I get away from all of this? In Ephesians 1, this is a wonderful part of the scripture now. This is a wonderful part of it. Because you see, sin in my life, I'm sure it is with yours, was the easiest thing I ever did. Sin's easy. It's just Lean to your yearnings. Lean to your feelings. Suppress nothing. Just give in to how you feel. Before Christ, we were all so weak and inefficient with our will. We couldn't stop sinning. You couldn't stop looking for girls or for boys or for a party. And yes, your conscience would bother you when it was over because the devil always invades your life 
when you're sitting on the edge of your bed and the party's over and everybody's gone, you're by yourself, and what just happened has already happened, and you can't go back in your past and change anything. Everything that's done in your past is a living reminder of just the kind of people we are. You can't change it. Oh, how the devil wants to always keep you in your past. While you're sitting here getting blessed, he says, yeah, remember that time? And he takes you back to your past to try to condemn you, to keep you from enjoying God. He sends you back to your past. Remember that time? And you get flashbacks. You get a little picture of that time. And you see what, and you go, oh, my, oh, Lord. If you don't know how to deal with that, then you'll just stop your worship of God. You'll begin to weep and cry and feel like you need to be saved again. Because the devil's a master at taking you backwards. Or if you're hearing about the promises of God and how you can be blessed, that's always forward. Oh, that's for another life. That's not for this life. Oh, no, no, you get all of that in heaven. All of this, the Bible talks about all these thousands of promises, healing, deliverance, protection, that's not for this life because look around at all the people that it didn't work for. See, we're to measure God and what he does by what the masses of people do. Till you get your eyes off of people and you say that it's not between me and people, it's between me and God. But the devil wants to keep you in your past or in your future. And you can't do anything about your past. What was done was done. Your past is spelled D-E-A-T-H, death. It's a death, dark life. You did it. It was your will. You're responsible, and you deserve the consequences of your past. You do. You deserve the consequences of sin, and the wages of sin is death. God called me out of darkness, didn't he? Called me out of darkness. He called it miry clay because it, this goo that wouldn't release you. And you're stuck until, in Ephesians 1, until one day God, who alone can do it, reached down with a strong right hand and rescued you. He lifted you up out of that glue, that couldn't hold you from his grip. He lifted you up out of that. And he said in Ephesians 1, verse 7, you got to like this. If you don't like this, you need to come forward. <laughs> in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What is grace? Favor. Who's it for? The undeserving. And when God shows favor to the undeserving, we call it mercy, mercifulness. God had mercy upon us because he's a loving God. Why Tom Hamilton? Why any of you? Why would God come down to the hell hole that we were living in and rescue any of us? There was nothing lovely about any of us. There was nothing in us that was deserving of anything God had. All we like sheep had gone astray. There was none righteous. And it goes worse than that. It said we were all dead in trespasses and sin. We can't respond to God. We can only wish we could, but we can't. My will is as dead as my sins made it. I am unable to will myself into God's kingdom, even though I recognize my sin. One day God has to begin his work, a divine work. It leads to repentance. It's when you become sorry for your sins and what you did. And the only way you know you can be released from your sins is because God who makes you sorry for your sins, you never were before, but one day you start getting that way. And he points you to that Bible story, that age-old story about the cross. And that cross on that hillside that day, on that cross, 
hung the offering that God sent to this world for your sins. We could do nothing about it. We deserve nothing from God. And one day God came to this world, made himself a body. His name was Jesus. Lived a perfect sinless life. Went to the cross, the altar. And they hung him on a cross and he died on the basis of his death. All sinners, all sinners who will believe in him are released from their sin and the penalty of it. He has borne your guilt. He has borne the penalty. He is the great sin offering for man's sin. Him who knew no sin was made to be sin. That is the sin offering. So that we might have the righteousness of God in place of our death. This story supersedes all the other stories in the Bible. For this is the story of man's redemption, being redeemed from death and brought into favor with God, a personal relationship with God, a mystery hidden from the ages, that a man can now awake from death unto life, seated in heavenly places with Christ, having favor with God and experiencing his grace, can come to the throne of God Anytime he needs help and obtain mercy. What a blessing that is. And to think this day, all of this is possible, not only because of what Jesus did, but what he's allowed me to believe and respond to. I am forgiven. My sin, we sing. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole nine yards. It doesn't say nine yards. But the whole thing was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. You mean all that stuff I did in college? Mm. All of those times in my life that I regret so much now that ever happened to me, he forgave it all. He forgave it all. All of us been washed. When I was baptized in water, it's a picture. We lowered in that grave, in this case a watery grave, buried with Christ. And then we were raised up so that we can walk in newness of life. Our sins are washed away. It's a picture. Stand before God in his sight justified, not because I deserve it, not because I earned it, not because I was good enough for it. I'd earned nothing. But by his invitation, I have responded, and he has cleansed me from my sin and made me to stand in his presence just as if I'd never sinned. If this doesn't affect my daily walk, it's never happened. The little song that we sing, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, Jesus set me free, e, e. Complicated song, isn't it? I'm free. He's forgiven me all of my sins. All the things that Jesus did for me, he has applied to me, and he has forgiven me from all of my sins. Again, he said that he hath redeemed me, in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And look at the next verse. Wherein he hath abounded toward us, in all wisdom and prudence or purpose or a mind set on something. Listen to me. God has set his mind upon you now that you're redeemed and your sin no longer separates you from him. There's no longer a barrier between you and him. He abounds toward you. Now you can come to him and he comes to you to grant you a life that's called the abundant life. What kept you from it? Sin. Sin. An immoral, unclean act of your choices, your will to do what you did, to say what you said, and so forth. When he forgave me of my sin, is he just saying, now Hamilton, I've got your sins here. If you mess up, I'm going to throw them back on you. 
or does he actually remove them? Let me give you two verses of scripture. You might want to jot this down somewhere to remember this on some of those dark days that you're dealing with things in your life. Look at Psalm 103 and verse 12. Psalm 103 and verse 12. What a wonderful thought. This is a long way apart here. As far as the east is from the west... So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, listen, if my transgressions, that's past tense, if my transgressions have been removed from me, as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Somebody help me and tell me, what is the distance between the end of the east to the end of the west? How far does west go? It doesn't go in a ball either, go around the bottom. East from the west, just a straight line. And the east is that way, and the west is that way. It's a long way. Now, God said, that's how far I have removed your sins from you. You bear them no more. Quit grieving over yesterday unless you're going to get saved today. Quit going back and remembering all the sins of your childhood. You've been forgiven if you're a Christian. Why wouldn't the devil bring up your past? Why wouldn't he throw back all the things you did, somebody you really did wrong or somebody you killed? Why wouldn't he bring all of that back to make you feel like you're not good enough? Nobody's good enough. I feel like when God rescued me, he rescued a dog. Paul said, I was a chief of sinners, the worst of all of them. When he rescued me, he had to go down and scrape on the bottom of the sinner's barrel. And he got something up in his, get out of his nail, cleaned his nail, and Paul came out. Why? We'll get to that in a minute, because you've got to have that too. Let me show you another verse. Turn to Micah. Micah, where's that at? Well, that's in there. Just keep going right. Micah, Nahum. Remember the Eminem boys? That's how I remember scriptures. Eminem, when you get to Amos, past Jonah, you get to Micah. Okay, anyway, Micah chapter 7 and verse 19. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. I don't know much about how deep the sea is in its deepest place, but it's intended to convey to us a long way from where you can't get to. In other words, God has forgiven you your sins. As Isaiah said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. That's Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25. I will not remember your sins. I will blot them out. When you think, again, to overdo this for a minute, when you think of the kind of people we were and the way we lived and the ugly things that we planned and schemed to do, that God, that God would have a desire to save you, I can't understand it. I can't understand why God would save me. Why? I don't know. There was no earthly reason. There was nothing about me that made him want to save me. But he did. But he did. And concerning the cross, he said he not only redeemed me by his blood, but he nailed all my sins to his cross. I'm free. I don't have to come to church anymore feeling so bad about how I grew up. We all grew up somehow, some way wrong. We all had bad attitudes about something. Some of us just indulged in a little bit more than others, but wrong is wrong. And here we sit. I've been forgiven. Oh, praise the Lord. Don't we sing that song? Da, 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 da. I've been forgiven by his blood. Oh, the chains of sin. 
Are they? Or do they still hang around and keep doing their thing? Did you really get delivered or are they still around? I've watched too many people in my ministry assume that they've been forgiven and assume that they were okay and yet they did the same thing again and again and again and again and again. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, he said, sin shall not have dominion over you. And the reason is that God has mastered it. God overcame. God nailed sin to the cross. He defeated sin and all of its abilities. And he comes to you and gives you him. Why would he do it? Well, that brings me to the second thing. Not only am I forgiven. I thought about that this, this week and I thought, praise God. I have been forgiven never to have it drug up and thrown in my face again. Why would God do such a thing? Because he loved me. And my second point is, not only am I forgiven, I am loved. I'm loved. But it doesn't mean you're loved if you're married. A lot of married people aren't loved. Marriage doesn't make you love each other forever. Love sometimes takes a lot of effort because things don't always turn out the way the romance book said it would or that storybook you read. Everybody wants to be loved. All mankind wants to be loved. We want somebody to love us. I don't mean to just face us every day with puckered lips, but every day to know that you're accepted, to know that you're appreciated, to know that you're liked, to know that I enjoy your presence, to know that whatever you want done, I'll help you do it. I'm with you. I'm going with you. I'm on your side just to be loved. Look how many youngsters are growing up today don't even know what love is. They think love is sex. Sex today has no love in it. It's recreational exercises today. It doesn't mean anything. It has nothing to do with love. Kids don't know today. I'm not talking about you here. I'm sure I'm not. But we got a world out there that talks about love as though love is passion. For feelings. It's all about feelings, emotions. It's all sensual. And how many people are involved in that kind of stuff? And not only when that is all past, you're sitting on the edge of your bed by yourself, you realize how dirty and how cheap you are, and you still feel unloved. You've been used, you haven't been loved. You've been taken advantage of. You haven't been loved. People don't really care about you as a person. They just want your body. That's not love. They talk about making love. That has nothing to do with love. That has all to do with lust. People are in lust with each other today, not love. But everybody wants to be loved. There's nobody who doesn't want to be loved. I don't know why God would love me. I'm not even sure I know why my wife would love me. Or you. You who are laughing, why would you? If you do, don't laugh too hard. Why would you love me? Why would I love you? I don't know all of you well. I don't like the word intimate with Christianity, but I don't know all of you intimately. I don't know you detailed. Why would I care? Why would I love you? Or why would you love me? I don't know. It's strange, isn't it? We just know there are people that won't hurt us. We know there are people that you can talk to that won't repeat you. They'll never put you in a bad light. There are people that you can talk to about some of the dirtiest parts in your life, and they won't hurt you. In a sense, they love you. They don't want to see any bad come to you. They want you to be fixed and taken care of because they love you. They go out of their way to help you because they love you. 
I think, again, in, especially in marriage, there's a lot of men that don't feel loved. They don't. Everything they do is challenged. Everything they say or ideas that they come up with are challenged or made fun of. It's just like being told, I don't accept you. I don't accept what you're saying. You bore me with your talk. A lot of women feel the same way. You're somebody I'm in the house with, but I'd just soon be out of the house most of the time. I don't enjoy your presence. I don't enjoy being with you. I really don't care what you're doing or what happened to you today or even how you feel. You know, go to church and fix it. I just don't really care. And you begin to feel unloved. And you begin to feel unaccepted and not wanted or rejected. And a person who feels like that, you can tell in their life the way they live, they're in a continual struggle. They do seek love. They do open themselves up sometimes and get hurt for it. They just want to be loved. Some people do things outrageously because at least they're noticed, and sometimes they mistake being noticed or talked about as being loved or accepted. People do a lot of things just to be loved. Somebody care for me. Somebody just desire me to be with them. Why would God love me? What did I do? I'm sure he loves me. What did I do for God to say, oh, Tom, you know, I, I love you. Why do you do that? God doesn't have feelings like I have feelings as far as this way and that way and up and down and in and out. He doesn't feel like that. God is eternal. Why would he love me? You know, this is a very difficult theological subject, but some people believe that God loves everybody. Now, you'll have a hard time in the Bible proving that. But he does love somebody. And everybody that he loves, he saves. And when he saves them, he changes them. And when he changes them, he fellowships with them and does all of the things that he does. And then when it comes time to leave the world, he says to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He takes them to heaven. I can't say for myself that as I look in the Bible that God loves everybody. I think at the time when the Israelites were fighting and God was on Israel's side and threw fire from heaven down on the enemy and killed them, I think he loved one side more than the other side. <laughs> and as far as love able to save, is there anybody that God cannot save? Is there anybody whose sins are so dark and deep that he cannot save them? So he is able because he is omnipotent and able to do as he pleases with his creation. He is able to save whomever he pleases. How did you get saved? Well, I was good enough to get saved. Oh, you were. I wasn't. I was bad enough to be unsaved. Why on June 30th, 1968, did God save me? Why? I don't know why. I just know that when he did, he set me on a course and taught me what it was like to be loved eternally by God. It supersedes love, period. I mean, it's beyond understanding. But God makes his choices. There were two men in the Bible, they were brothers. God said he loved one of them and hated the other one. And he said that before they were born. How can this be? How can this be? Because God is under nobody's rules as to what he must do with his creation. God can save whoever he wants. He doesn't have to save anybody. He didn't have to save us. He didn't have to. There was nothing that made him do it. Go back to Ephesians. He did what he did because he wanted to. And he did it from the creation of the world. Before there was ever a world. Verse 4. 
according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. When did he do this? Does your Bible say before the foundation of the world? Then before there was a world, there was a you in the mind of God. That before God created the world, there was this knowledge of you and a time in this thing called history that you would be in this world and that you in this world would be the object of his affections and that God at the right time and season in your life would visit you with conviction. And the basis for him visiting you with conviction is so that he can point you to the cross of Calvary where Jesus died and shed his blood. So through that, God can now meet you and save you. Why would he do that to you? He didn't do it to all my buddies. The people I grew up with and the guys that I knew growing up and college and everything, been around them not too long ago, there is no sense of anything spiritually valuable in their life. Nothing. They're getting up in years. They're older than I am. All the people I grew up with. I think I was the youngest one in my class or the next to the youngest one in my class. Senior year, 16 years old as a senior in high school. Can you imagine? 16? And there's just nothing there. Why me? Why on that day, June 3rd, well, first Bonnie made it out. She went down. Why did I do that that day? Why did I go there? Why was it in my heart on the way down there? This is forever. This is forever. No looking back. I didn't know that was in the Bible, but I knew that when you did this, you don't go back. Why was that in my heart? Why was it I wanted to do it? Folks, while this was going on, God was in his way loving me. He was drawing me to him. He did not have to. He was under no constraints to, but he drew me to him. He introduced himself to me little by little, just a little gleam of light here, a little gleam of light there, and more and more the light shines into a brighter day. You could just see more, just get a little bit more of it. The more you look for it, the more you begin to see. And one day you realize that God loved me more in saving me. I don't know any other way he could love me more. God loves me. One of the first songs that any of us ever heard, religious song, is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones and big Tom too. They love him and so do you. It's what God did. Why he saved us, I don't know, but I know that he loved me. And not only did he love us when he saved us, but he did something else for us. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Would you go over there? You need to see these. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. That's why he saved you according to his own purpose. Now, he didn't see your talents. He didn't see your beauty. He didn't see your social graces. How are you nice to me? He didn't see that. But he saw whatever he saw, and he defines it in the Bible as according to his own purpose. Now, back again in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to what? According to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, and so forth. I hope you can see this morning that the compelling reason for God saving us was according to his own purpose. It's not according to our talents that we had that would make us useful to him. It had nothing to do with that. 
In fact, every one of us who changes that thinks we've got something to offer God, he wants us to die to it so we don't take credit for anything now in the kingdom. It's just letting yourself just die to your ways and take up his ways. He did that according to his purposes. This is what God wanted from us. This is the way he has treated us and loved us. See, he loves me forever. God doesn't love me today because I do well today, but God has purposed to love me eternally, forever. There's not a day which he stops loving me from now on throughout all the rest of whatever will be. He will love me. He will never stop loving me. What about if you kind of get bad? What if you mess up? Us mess up? How could we mess up? Well, what would he do if we did? He does talk about if any of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So he doesn't say that we cannot sin anymore. We're not supposed to, but times you do. We have an advocate with the Father. And if you're dragging your feet, what does he do? And you just kind of, you know, I'm just a weak link in this wonderful chain. Well, let me tell you something that God does. He chastens people. Chastening has to do with correcting and redefining. Chastening means discipline or instruction. Padilla. It's how parents train a child. It's through this. And when it's applied to us in correcting us, it's called chastening. But here's what God says. Every son that he receives, he chastens because he loves them. Hebrews 12. He chastens whom he loves. Now, if you think he chastens everybody in the world, you need to stop thinking about that. God only chastens his own, whom he loved. Now, his own in the Bible are called elect. That's another wonderful theological subject, elect. Those whom God purposed to salvation from the foundation of the world who were chosen to be saved were called the elect. And he says to those people, in making sure at the end of their life, he does not have to judge them for their sins, he chastens them along the way so that in the end, they're not doing the things they used to do. He is now able to say, a righteous and fair God can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If he had not have done his work in us and about us and dealt with us the way he does, we would have been judged. He loves you enough to spare you from death. He doesn't leave you alone because he loves you. He doesn't let you have any rest or peace about wrong things in your life because he loves you. A parent spanks their child when they're bad because they love their child. The child says, how can it be? It hurts. The parent says, you don't understand what I understand. If I let you talk like that and act like that, you'll grow up to be such a vile person that God will judge you. I'm going to teach you manners and proper things in life. You're going to learn to honor authority. And if you sass me, I'm going to chastise you because I don't want to leave you like that. I don't want you to grow up like that. I'm going to fix you. That's why you spank. It's because you care. In fact, Scripture says, if you spare your rod, it means you hate your son. You would rather yourself cry than to watch him cry. But one day he will cry, and you will cry worse because he'll be rejected. Love demands correction. That's why God is chasing us. That's why we don't get by with anything. That's why he's constantly on us. Do you think God loves us enough to give us his word? You think the things the Bible said are always pleasant to hear? Even Paul wrote, he said, strong doctrine must be endured. You got to deal with it. You can't ignore it. You can't walk away from it because if you turn your back on God, that's a spirit of rebellion. And that's sin. That's the worst of sins. Rebellion. So he pulls you back to where you can't get away from it, and you got to hear it again. And you want to get away from it, and he makes you hear it again because he's God. He can do that. 
until you finally submit to it and you begin to live the way he wants you to live. Then he doesn't have to judge that area of your life again. He's changing us. Go back two books. 1 Corinthians 11. It's not that far. 1 Corinthians 11. He said in verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If we would see ourselves the way we are and would reach a verdict against ourselves, we would not cause God to reach a verdict against us in the next verse. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. Why? What loving reason, why? Love compels this. If you love somebody who's not going well, you do what you can to make them go well because if they don't go well, they die. They come up short in life. Your son or your daughter who's so cute now, if they're not trained well in this life, they won't do well in this life. They can become hateful and loathsome just like we were once. And then we've learned nothing when we didn't make it better for them. But he said in that verse, he said, the reason we are chastened is so that we will not be condemned along with the rest of the world. Is the rest of the world condemned? Why will you not then be condemned along with them? Why will you not be condemned along with them? You know why you won't be condemned along with the rest of the world? Because God wouldn't leave you alone in correcting you. He just follows you around. He's a loving God. My mother was a loving mother to me, but boy, there was time she drew back and it was awful. Break that limb off that maple tree and look at me while she had to grab the very tip of the limb, the thin part of the switch, put her fingers around it like she's going to milk a cow and just slicked all them little limbs off that limb until all she had left was a, a little limb. No leaves on it. And she'd hold that thing on the big part on the bottom and there was fire flying out of the top of it. <laughs> just fire. If you held it up in the sky, you'd see heat waves coming off that switch. And she's fixing to use that thing on me because I didn't do it the way she wanted me to and I got a spanking. So the day she died, she said, I never got near as many as I deserved. <laughs> said, you're making up all them stories about me spanking you. And I, well, serves a point. If like a lot of parents today, if I didn't love my kids, I'd just tell them it doesn't matter. Give them five bucks and get them out of the house so they leave me alone. But a good parent, as God would, make sure you mind. Every time God deals with us, every time you feel that, oh, about that, why does he keep saying that? God's loving you because if you don't heed that, he's going to have to judge you. Quit turning your back. Quit staying home thinking, I'm not ready. Quit doing that. Because if God marked you for salvation, he's going to follow you all the way home. He's going to drag you back. He's going to make you hear it. And you're going to, by your will, you're going to say, God, forgive me. I am sorry. And he will. That's how much he loves me. Constantly loves me. Listen to what Jeremiah said. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I have loved you with an everlasting love. What kind of love is that? He said, And with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Does he stop loving me It's somewhere along the way? What if I'm really bad? What if, like David, I mess up with a Bathsheba? Does he say, well, that's it. I'm not loving you anymore. Did that do it? No. But you can't assume that if you're going out doing that, that you've ever been in the right place to begin with. In a lot of ways, David was a bad man. I mean, he killed a lot of people. He did a lot of things. But in more ways, he was a good man. He had a heart for God. He really did. He had a heart for God, even though there's a lot of bad stuff happened. Read Psalm 51, how he, this was a king. His heart gushed his sorrow for the sins of his life. He had the kind of heart that 
God wants us to have. But can this love be terminated? Turn to Romans 8. A wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thought here. Everybody should know this. Everybody who's a Christian. Because there's times you think, well, God won't love me anymore. God doesn't love me anymore. God's quit loving me. Wait a minute. Let me give you some good advice here. Or a good verse of scripture. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? It looks like God has forsaken us sometimes, people would say. No. Verse 36, as it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that what? That loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, no height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing possible from God's side which is going to separate you from him loving you. Remember that verse in Isaiah 49 and verse 16, he said a nursing mother could sooner forget her child than I could forget you. He said, I have graven thee on the palms of my hand. He didn't grave everybody there, but he graved his own. And these are his own. And he has chosen as an act of his will according to his purpose to love you with an everlasting love so long as you shall live. And even when you die, his love for you doesn't end. It graduates into eternity. And there it is, endless. You live in the love of God the rest of your life, and he loves you as nobody else could because he's God. Will you go back to the Ephesians again? Aren't you glad you found the book of Ephesians? What a book. What an absolute wonderful book in the Bible. But Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. Listen to these words about love. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, oh, Jesus, thank you so much. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? In light of what he just said, we were rats and dogs, unclean things. But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ, for by grace are you saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, here in Kentucky, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How wonderful is it how marvelous is it that when we were dead and undone in our trespasses and sins, even then he loved you. 
Now, if he loved you then, don't sit here today while you're struggling with Christian things or going through this or that and start thinking he doesn't love you now that you're doing far better than you ever did. If he loves you then, he loves you more now. Yet, I don't think you can say more or less when it comes to God's love. But if he loves you then, he loves you now. He's not going to terminate his love for you because you messed up. We don't want to mess up. We don't look to messing up. We don't accept messing up. It has happened. And God never has said, well, you messed up. Me and you are done. He just causes to come into your life what needs to come. He deals with you with whatever way he needs to deal with you. He says to you whatever you need to hear. And he works on you this way and he works on you that way. And he just keeps bringing you back to him. And you feel like you just want to quit and give up on God. And he just brings you back. Brings you back. The two times I can remember in my past I wanted to quit. The very day I made up my mind to quit. The very day. After I got beaten sectional tournament. Shaw Memorial High School, Madison, Indiana, beat me in my last game I ever coached in high school. That's it. I'm done. Why I went to the preacher's office after school, I don't know, but I did. Because a lot of times people who don't want to quit want to be with somebody that will get on them. They do. I went to the preacher's office. Sit down. That's bad about that game last night, wasn't it? Yeah. You all right? Ah, yes. He looked at me and he said, are you a big crybaby? Mm, I wasn't in a mood for that. Man, I wasn't. I mean, I wasn't in a mood for that. I wanted to holler at him, yell at him real loud, because I can yell real loud. Shut up. And yet it was a time that God had appointed for me to be loved by God through a man who was rebuking me. And he called me a baby. You've been out there talking to those kids about Jesus and you lost a ball game and now you're going to quit over a dumb ball game? But don't you raise your voice no more. But all I could do, I remember, I still remember the sitting there in that chair. All I could do was listen because in my heart I knew he was right and I needed to hear this because if I didn't, I would have quit. If somebody hadn't got on me, I would have walked away. Isn't it marvelous how God has people to send across your path? to love you on when you're most unlovely days, to keep you from falling away, to care about you when nobody else cares about you. Jesus loves me this, I absolutely know in chapter three and verse 16, cause the Bible here tells me so, verse 16, that he would grant to you in Shelbyville Christian Assembly and out yonder in the world that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm going to end with that. Listen, from God's side, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. You must know the love of God. And yet it passes knowledge. It's beyond you comprehending and finding out, except in the little dimension that God in your little mind and heart, he puts it in there until one day, as I've been saying for the last half hour, one day you realize how much God loves me. I am still here. I have not walked away. I have not quit. I have messed up more in my life than a man should be allowed to mess up. I am still here. I still have a heart for God. I don't grieve about my past. I've been forgiven. And I think of all the times God has determined my life by people that have been in my life that have set me straight. He didn't have to do that. It's all divine. Filled with the knowledge of his love onto the very fullness of God. And you look around. 
the people he's chosen to do this with, they're not senators and mayors and lawyers and presidents in this room. No, this is what he picked to do all this with. Amen. We'll finish this next time. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning from the depths of our heart for the little bit that we do understand, the little bit that we have grasped about how you love us. I pray that we would have this amplified in our life more and more in these days. And we'll realize more and more that the reason our faith works is because we love you and we want to please you. And that's how we please you. And teach us, Lord, that you care about us more than we have ever imagined. You've corrected us and chastened us. You've turned us around and one day our eyes were open and we saw it. And we said, praise the Lord. Because you were good to us. Lord, you have filled this world with the picture of your goodness. And that is our inheritance, your goodness. Help us to live and to walk as loving people towards you and toward each other. For you said in that way we fulfill all the law. We love you and we love our neighbors. That we might speak the truth and love with each other and be honest and fair. Dear Father, I know there are people in this room right now that, that need to know that you love them. Maybe they never have known that. Maybe they only have a little bitty taste of that. I pray this week will be an adventure beginning today to come to know what it's like to be loved by God and to love him. Quicken us, O oh God, in this way, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.